it started with what looked like small black seeds in the bottom of our kitchen cupboards. And we thought perhaps some, some bagels had fallen down there and the seeds <laughs> dropped off. I haven't even got there yet. Come on. <laughs> so we cleaned them up. Then the same black seeds appeared again in the same place. And we realized that either we have someone in the house that keeps dropping bagels and they're scattering little black seeds, or these aren't actually little black seeds, which means they're something else. And through a process of Google searches and hopefully a little bit of common sense, we discovered that some little rodent had been using our cupboards as a public rodent toilet. And what looked like little black seeds were in fact cute little rodent poops from cute little rodents who cease being cute little rodents when they're pooping cute little rodent poops in your food cupboards. And most likely it's not just one rodent. After all, mice tend to move in little packs or groups or herds, as anyone who's watched Ratatouille can testify to. So we started to try to reason with the little critters, explaining that if they didn't move on, that more drastic measures would have to be taken. But that didn't work. Uh, So we started putting down little poisoned seeds that apparently taste good to mice, but it leaves them feeling a little rotten afterwards, perhaps even a little dead. And maybe that worked, but we didn't know because after eating the seeds, the mouse had enough time left in its short little life to scurry off somewhere else, complain of a poorly tummy before going to see the big cheese in the sky. And because they went and died somewhere else, we never knew if it was working or not, which when you think about it is pretty inconsiderate of the mice. So we had to take measures that were more measurable. We needed to see that the mouse problem had been taken care of. We needed a body of evidence, literally. So that's when I went to Walmart and I bought a couple of black plastic mouse traps. I came home and I set them. And lo and behold, we caught our first mouse. And lo and behold, we disposed of our first mouse. And since then, we've caught of and disposed of a few mice. And we've, we've been gradually able to reclaim our cupboard space. Life has been able to get back to normal with the added chore of going to the bin every couple of weeks. But in order to get things back on track, we needed to do three things. We had to admit it. We had to admit that there was a problem. We had to realize that things weren't as they should be. Even if we didn't know what was the problem yet, we had to admit that there was a problem and it wasn't little black seeds. Secondly, we had to identify the problem. We, 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 we had to be specific. We had to find out what these little black seeds were and where they came from. And thirdly, we needed to put it to death. So we had to admit it, we had to identify it, and then we had to put it to death. Now, the Israelites have just seen God move in a powerful way. They've seen him hand the city of of Jericho over into their hands. They're pumped and they're excited and they're chomping at the bit. And so they move 15 miles up the road to the second major fortress standing between them and the whole of the promised land. It's an outpost called Ai. It's smaller than Jericho, and it should be easier to take. So let's take up the account in verse 2 of Joshua chapter 7. Verse 2 of Joshua chapter 7 says this, 
Now Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-Avon, to the east of Bethel, and told them, go up, go up and spy out the region. So the men went up and spied out Ai. When they, re- when they returned to Joshua, they said, not all the army will have to go up against Ai. Send two or three thousand men to take it, and do not weary the whole army, for only a few people live there. So about three thousand went up. But they were routed by the men of Ai, who killed about 36 of them. They chased the Israelites from the city gate as far as the stone quarries and struck them down on the slopes. At this, the hearts of the people melted in fear and became like water. Now, if we, or we, we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11... It says this, These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of ages has come. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. And what this shows us is that these accounts written in the Bible aren't just moral tales or great stories or entertaining reads. According to... um, to this verse which I've just read from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, these stories are written down, these accounts are written down for a specific purpose, as warnings to us. And then the verse, verse moves on and it says, so, or therefore, in light of this, if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. It's at that moment of standing firm that you might actually be absolutely wrong. You might be way off track, that your assessment of your current state might be wrong. So be careful, be warned. And I think that this is why God saw fit to include the account of Achan and Ai in the Bible as a warning to me and as a warning for you. So I think it's worth us tuning in and listening. Because ultimately, the, the reason for the failed attack on Ai was a man named Achan, as we will find out. But the leader, name of Joshua, never saw Achan. He probably never even met Achan, but he knew something was wrong. Even if he didn't see Achan's crime, Joshua saw the collateral damage of Achan's sin. See, because what Achan thought was a personal, private sin actually had much more of an impact than even he thought. That there were other people who were drawn into his sin. There were consequences without Achan even realizing it. Because Achan believed in the myth of secret sin. He believed in the lie that what happened in the privacy of his own tent, out of sight of the the other Israelites was his problem alone. It was his sin. But as we read in verse 5 of Joshua chapter 7, 36 dead soldiers proved him wrong that this was a secret sin. It was a private sin. It was no one else's business except his. You know, think about it. The, the, the Israelites had just seen God miraculously take down the walls of Jericho. They had trounced their enemies, and seeing the power of God over evil, it was incredible stuff. Now they move on to the smaller city of Ai, and they're full of confidence. They're so full of confidence, in fact, that they lean back on their chairs, they yawn a little bit, and they say, you know what? Don't worry about sending everyone. 
They've just done seven reps around the city of Jericho. They're probably pretty tired. Why not let them have a rest, have a couple of days off? AI is a much smaller fort, so it shouldn't be too much of a problem. Let's just send out, let's, let's just send up about 3,000 people. They should be able to handle it. And even though our sermon here, here today is about AI as a whole and not focusing on Achan as an individual, I think it's important that, that that we hear this little maybe sidebar at this moment, this, this thing that we recognize. And it is this, that when we sin, we are never in control of the fallout of our sin. We can never be sure what the consequences of our sin are going to be. We think that we can handle it, that we can manage it, that we won't let it get out of control. Just one look, just one glass, just one spin of the roulette wheel, just one line, just one fudge, just one click, just one lie, just one browse, just one kiss. No one ever asks, how can I ruin and hurt as many people as I can? I know, I'll have an affair. And so even though it's our choice to, to maybe give in, for that first temptation, how wide-reaching and widespread all of the damage and the collateral damage afterwards, that's not in our control. That's out of our control. And when we engage in sin, we do not know who's going to be part of the collateral damage. And Achan found this out, much to his shame and his regret. And so verse 4 tells us that, that, that these 3,000 Israelites went up and they were routed And we're not told how or what tactics the AI army used, but we do know that when the Israelites went up with some cockiness in their step, but they returned with a tail between their legs. They did not seek God, and they did not ask of him. They just made an assumption, and they got it absolutely wrong. Sin was now in the camp. And Joshua had no choice but to admit that there was a problem, even though he didn't yet know what the problem was. Wendy and I had to come to a point where we realized that those little brown specks weren't seeds, even though we didn't yet know what they actually were. And similarly, Joshua had to come to a place where he realized that something was wrong. And in verse 7 of Joshua chapter 7, we see Joshua's response after tearing his clothes and falling face down in the Lord's presence along with the other elders after sprinkling, sprinkling dust on his head as a sign of grief and distress. This is what Joshua said to God in verse 7 of chapter 7. He said this, Alas, sovereign Lord, why did you ever bring the people across the Jordan to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites? to destroy us. If only we had been content to stay on the other side of the Jordan. Would you pardon your servant, Lord? What can I say now that Israel has been routed by its enemies? The Canaanites and the other people of the country will hear about this and they will surround us and wipe out our name from the earth. What then will you do for your own great name? And what strikes me about these words is that primarily they're not words of repentance. What I do hear is him saying, what on earth just happened? I'm at a loss here. I have no idea. And I think that what maybe Joshua is showing us here is that sometimes we can be too quick to jump on the repentance train. That, uh, because this prayer has very little about sin in it. He's more confused than, than anything else. And sometimes we're so ready to, 
you know, confess this and that and everything and all things, if only it will make things right between us and the Lord again, if only we can maybe feel him again. But God maybe wants us to slow down a little bit. He wants us to not be so fast in our repentance. And what Joshua also shows us is that undiscovered or undealt with sin undermines our confidence with the Lord. You see, the Lord had just ripped down the walls of Jericho, and, and what, what Joshua should have been doing was riding high on this reputation as this man who gets things done, uh, who has this line straight to heaven uh, itself. And yet what we see here is Joshua the emotional mess. It's as if Jericho never happened, because Joshua's confidence in God has been undermined. His faith is shaky. What's, what happens to the walls of Jericho is at risk of happening to his life right now. He's questioning even whether God wants them there in the promised land. And so what, what Joshua shows us here is that when sin infiltrates our lives, when we let it have a foothold in our lives, our minds can go to the worst case scenario, maybe even thinking that God has left us alone, that He's abandoned us. It can cause us to act out of character. It can cause us to maybe despair. And I hope that this conversation with God happened in secret. Because if the people, if the members of the army had seen their leader in this state, it would have have, have really done a lot of harm. But what I learn here is that God's first goal is not necessary to bring us straight to repentance, but his first goal is to show us that there is something wrong. It's to show us that there is a break in the relationship, even if we don't know why yet. And we've all had those times when we feel that God is really distant, when he's not near, when we feel that he's frowning on us rather than smiling on us when we feel that something is not right and we don't know what it is yet but deep in our gut we know that something has come between us and the lord we see the telltale signs we see all the collateral damage and this is what joshua saw he had to admit that something was was wrong but god was not asking him to rush repentance he would rather that he would rather joshua was sincere in his repentance than quick in his repentance he was willing for joshua to tear his clothes to to shower dust on his head to lie down face down in the dirt all day long because god wanted him to feel the burn and the loss and the pain of this broken relationship and we have to do the same when things aren't great between us and God, let's not rush straight into confession. We, we have to allow God to do his work in us first, to really bring us to a place of genuine feeling, to knowing right in our gut that something is wrong, that there's genuine guilt, there's genuine remorse. There's not just religious guilt or religious remorse. It says in Proverbs 17, verse 3, it says, The crucible for silver and the furnace for gold, but the Lord tests the heart. We have to allow him in. We have to allow him to really test us. And so after, after first, this first stage of maybe admitting it, after sitting with this soul-deep discomfort that things weren't right, Joshua and Israel were ready to 
to identify the sin, which is the second stage, because it's only after we admit it, it's only after we admit that things are wrong, that we're ready to identify what the problem is. And many times we get this wrong, uh, the wrong way around. We identify the sin first and then we admit that we're sinners afterwards because of the sin that we've just identified. But here God shows us that admitting we're sinners has to come in front of identifying the sin. After all, what would have happened if Joshua had not admitted first, if he'd not waited on the Lord? What if he had not allowed the Lord time to reveal what was really going on here? What if Joshua had jumped straight to the wrong, wrong conclusion? He might have thought that, that, that maybe God was not happy with him because he didn't seek God prior to the attack on, on, on AI. And of course, that was a problem, but that was not the main problem. And the main problem was this person who had broken the covenant with the Lord himself. And if, if he'd have jumped to this conclusion, this much greater sin would have been left hidden and would have wreaked much, much more havoc. And so we have to let God have the time to get into the real source of the matter. And the real stuff is usually under the surface. It's not, not obvious. It's hidden. It takes time. And it means that God has to reveal it to us. We don't find it out ourselves. We have to let God show us what it is. Because listen what, what God reveals to Joshua in verse 11. He says this. He says, Israel have sinned. They have They have violated my covenant, which I commanded them to keep. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen. They have lied. They they have put them with their own possessions. That, That is why the Israelites cannot stand against their enemies. They turn their backs and run because they have been made liable to destruction. I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy whatever among you is devoted to destruction. Now, I like reading thesauruses, okay? I use them a lot in my sermons. It helps me express myself in many different ways. So, for example, rather than saying the word happy, I could say cheerful, I could say elated, I could say overjoyed, I could say on cloud nine. Um, these are all different ways that I can say happy. And I think that as Christians, what we're good at is finding synonyms for sin. So instead of sin... We look up in in our thesaurus and we say words like weakness or error or shortcoming or wrongdoing, missing the mark, failing, falling, stumbling. These are all words which we use instead of sin. And the thing with God is that, as we see here, is that he likes to call sin, sin. He likes to get rid of the thesaurus and uh, just use the word itself. Which is why we read in verse 11, he says, Israel has sinned. And then he goes on to, um, to use this ancient system of lots to find out exactly what the problem is. And so we read in verse 16 of chapter 7, early the next morning, Joshua had Israel come forward in tribes and, Josh, and, and Judah was chosen. The clans of Judah came forward and the Zerahites were chosen. He had the, clan of the clans of the Zerahites come forward by families and Zimri was chosen. Joshua had his family come forward man by man and Achan, son of Kami, the son of Zimri, the son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah was chosen. And then Joshua said to Achan, verse 19, my son, Give glory to the Lord, 
the God of Israel, and honor him. Tell me what you have done. Do not hide it from me. And Achan replied, it is true, I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. This is what I have done. When I saw in the plunder a beautiful robe from from Babylonia, 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, I, I coveted them and I took them. They are hidden in the ground inside my tent with the silver underneath. So after admitting that we had this problem of unidentified fecal matter at home, our job was then to find out what the problem actually was. And I'm not an animal killer. I wasn't raised in North Gore on a farm. So I have a fairly romanticized view of wildlife, especially cute wildlife. When I was a kid, I read books like Watership Down and maybe Beatrix Potter. And one of my favorite books was about a little mockingbird called Little Mocker. And I still remember it now. I'd love to read it again, but I can't find it. And my favorite cuddly toys, I've told you before, was a little purple dog whose name was Purple Dog. So it took, it took a real leap for me to start identifying cute mice as vermin. But the thing was, I didn't want them in my house. I didn't want them pooping in my pans. And so I had no choice but to start identifying them as vermin or as pests because it was only as I started identifying them as vermin that I was ready to actually do something about it. I had moved from admitting that there was a problem to identifying what the problem was. And only then was I ready for the last stage, putting it to death. And... Here in this story in Joshua 7, I can imagine the nervousness of the tribes as they came forward and lots were cast and one tribe was chosen and then, and then the clans came forward from, from that tribe and lots were cast and one clan was chosen and then from that clan, all of the representatives of the families came forward and lots were cast and one leader of these families was, was chosen and then from that one family, one of the, all of the heads within that family came forward and from that family, one, one man was chosen, and his name was Achan. He was chosen by Lot. And you could have cut the tension with a knife. The cat was out of the bag. The culprit was caught. Now, when I read this, something I wonder is, why did God go through the showmanship of choosing a tribe, then a clan, then a family, then a person? After all, right at the beginning, God, if he's omniscient, as we believe he is, if we know everything, then he would have known it was Achan right from the start. So why did he do all this big show of um, lots and finding out exactly who, who, who it was? And I don't have an answer, but I do wonder if this was a chance for grace, this isn't written in the Bible, but I do wonder that as this lot, as these lots were going on, was this the chance that maybe, maybe Achan had to step forward and say, "It was me." Uh, because what's clear is that it's only it's only when Achan's hand is forced that he actually confesses. He's backed into a corner. He has no other choice, and so he he confesses. And he was found out. His sin found him out. So he's found out as being the one who broke the relationship with God and by extension brought the rest of the Israelites into conflict with God himself. And here is the irony. Achan just had to wait a couple of days 
And he could have had all of the bounty that he wanted. How do I know this? Well, well, as, as the first city in the promised land, when they went, in, went, went into Jericho, when God brought those walls down, that was God's first fruits. After that, they had the freedom to loot, you know, and to take what they wanted. But that first city was his. And so if he'd only have waited a couple of days, he would have had whatever he wanted. There would have been no restrictions. It was just 15 miles away. But he wasn't able to wait. He was impatient. He took God's rightful claim and he made it his own. He lied. He stole and Achan paid for his sin. As we read in verse 22, it says, So Joshua sent messengers and they ran to the tent. And there it was, hidden in his tent with the silver underneath. They took the things from the tent. They brought it to Joshua and the Israelites and spread them out before the Lord. That's interesting, that right? Is that God's there. He's seeing this. And then Joshua together with all Israel, took Achan, son of Zerah, the silver, the robe, the gold bar, his sons and daughters, his cattle, donkeys and sheep, his tents, and all that he had to the valley of Achor. Joshua said, why have you brought this trouble on us? The Lord will bring trouble on you today. Then all Israel stoned him, and after they had stoned the rest, they, they burnt them. Over Achan they heaped up a large pile of rocks, which remains until this day. Then the Lord turned from his fierce anger. Therefore that place has been called the Valley of Achor ever since. So sin has to be dealt with. Because if sin is left to fester and grow, it will eat us alive. That's something which we maybe don't remember nowadays. It's something which, which, which goes from my mind easily. How easy is it to hide sin under the carpet in our living room? How, and, and how many broken families are limping along because of hidden sin, because of secret sin, because of unconfessed sin? Achan died because of his sin. How many of us are introducing death into our lives and our families just like, just like Achan did? I mean, look at the process in verse 21, where he says, I look, I, I saw, I coveted, and I took. I saw, I coveted, and I took. So at what point was it sin? Was it sin for him to see? No, but then he wanted it. He really coveted it. And these things grew in his mind until there was no room for anything else, even God himself. And then he took. And what happens after taking something that's not yours? You hide it, and so he hid it. And what I think is happening here is that his family would have known what had happened. It would have been hard to hide all this stuff without all, all of the rest of the family knowing about it. Um, and so they, they were punished. They were killed along with him. So what we learn from this is that until sin is actually dealt with, they were not able to face their foe in warfare. So, and, and what this actually shows us as well is that there's this word used. It says in verse 7 that the Israelites' hearts were melting in fear, which is, that is, is, which is exactly the language that's used of the Canaanites back in chapter 2, where it says, Our hearts melted in fear and everyone's courage failed. And now that, that same language is being used of the Israelites. Now, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 27, we, uh, we actually have Jesus shine some light on the importance of really getting rid of sin in, in our lives. Matthew chapter 5, verse 27, it says this, You have heard that it was said, you shall, not, 
You shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And then he says this, if your right eye causes you to stumble, you should gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole, whole body to be thrown into hell. So what both the fate of Achan and what Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 5 show us is that sin has to be dealt with absolutely. It has to be dealt with really drastically because in my life, many times sin is excused. It's allowed. It's renamed. um, It's rebranded. We just say that sin is a part of us being human. But here we are told in Jesus' words himself, gentle Jesus, meek and mild, is saying we have to gouge it out. We have to cut it off. It must be put to death. And then we read in the book of Colossians chapter 3 verse 5 where it, it says this, Colossians 3 verse 5, it says, put to death therefore Whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry, because of these, the wrath of God is coming. So, is there any of these that maybe rings true for you? What about sexual, Im- sexual immorality? What about impurity? What about lust? What about evil desires? What about greed? Because Paul says that it's because of these things that the wrath, that the anger, that the judgment of God is actually coming. It's, it's on its way. And if you're someone that's maybe struggling with sleepless nights, um, then this is a sign of grace. This is a sign that, 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 God, um, that, 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 that you're living out of sorts with God himself and that he wants to draw you back into relationship with, with him, that he wants you to sort it out. So if your conscience is troubling you, listen to it. Don't ignore it. Don't pass it off or hope that it goes away because God is speaking to you loud and clear. And you have to take that time to find out what it is that, that, that maybe God's trying to show you in your life. You have to pour your heart out. Let me uh, draw us to a close with Psalm 32, which says this. Psalm 32, verse 3 says this, When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me, my strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover up my my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. So there's hope. But there are many people who are keeping quiet their whole lives, who are hoping that, that maybe the Lord never finds out, who are hiding things under their carpet, who are living with their strength, sapped as in the heat of summer, who are walking around with a burden on their, on their lives, the, the, the size of the CN Tower, who never know what it is to have a clean conscience. And what is the, what's, what's, what's the turning point, according to Psalm 32? It's acknowledging my sin before you. And not covering up my sin. Because God already knows your sin. He's not fooled. He's aware of it. But you have to, have to uncover it. You have to let it all out. You have to show him. And then it says that, uh, that, 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 that suddenly all of that, all of that pressure which was on me is released. It says, I will confess 
my, my transgressions to you and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Now, when I'm, when I'm talking about sin, I'm not talking about our nice little sins. Okay, I'm, okay I'm, I'm not talking about being mean to our brothers or sisters. What I'm talking about are the putrid things, okay, and the disgusting things. I'm talking about the filthy things and the shameful things. I'm, I'm not talking about our polite, nice little sins. I'm, it's these vile things which are hiding in the corners, which are plaguing our dreams. It's these things that constantly leave us feeling soiled and, and maybe guilt-ridden, um, that, that, that remove that shine from our eyes and joy from our hearts, that steal that song from our lips and the lightness from our souls. These things which we've hidden under the rug, which we've locked in the closet, which we've buried down deep, these are the things that we have to bring to God our, our lusting, our pride, our wandering, our selfishness. Because what happened to Ai did not have to happen. 36 men did not have to lose their lives. Achan and his family did not have to die. And yet they did because sin has unforeseen collateral damage. So, my question for you is, what is God wanting you to what is he wanting to show you that he already knows about when will your hatred of the status quo reach further than your shame of what's hidden what what will it take for you to be so completely and utterly sick of your sin and feeling god's hand heavy on you and your strength sapped as in the heat of summer that you will do whatever it takes to make things right because it's only as we let it out that we can let the lord in and all that we have to do is to invite god into our tent we have to peel back that false floor and we have to show god the things that we've been hiding we just have to, have to invite God into the cellar of our lives and ask him to clean shop because we cannot clean shop by ourselves. You know, it, it says in the Bible, if you live according to the flesh, you will die just like Achan. But if by the Spirit you put to death the, the, the misdeeds of the body, you will live. That's what Roman 8 says, but it's the Spirit that has to help us do this. What we will learn next week is... is is because of what happened, they were able to turn this route into restoration. 